Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The Minneapolis City Council is moving forward with a proposed amendment to the city's charter that would disband the current police department and replace it with the Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. Voters will ultimately decide the fate of the council's proposal in November if it passes some bureaucratic hurdles in the meantime. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology Michelle Phelps discusses systemic racism in our nation's police departments and what a new vision for law enforcement might look like. Professor Phelps, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me. Following the death of George Floyd and the resulting protests, many people both locally and nationally now agree that major changes must be made to policing. But how to implement these changes is less clear, and the solutions range from major structural reform to defunding the police to dismantling the police to abolishing the police altogether. Can you walk us through a brief analysis of these ideas? How are they different and where do they converge? Sure. So there are, as you say, uh, a range of sort of possible outcomes on the table right now. So I would say that the way that I would describe that the moment that we are in right now is a period where we have been doing pretty intensive police reforms for several years now. So in the wake of the initial growth of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2014 in Ferguson and across the nation, After that point, we had a series of police departments, and MPD was one of them, that were engaging in a series of reform activities. And these included things like officer trainings to deal with implicit bias and de-escalation and mental health crises, changes in police use of force policies to try and restrict use of force, changes locally. We had a change in the the leadership of MPD in the wake of Justine Damon's shooting uh, by an officer of the MPD. Um, There were community listening sessions. There were attempts to revise how um, officer discipline happened and implement early warning systems for officers who had conducted misconduct. So we were already in a period of pretty significant reform. And the Minneapolis Police Department is notable because we were one of the six pilot sites for the um, National Initiatives Program on Building Community Trust and Justice. And we're really seen nationally as a leader in some of these police reform efforts. And so I think part of what has happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder is a real disillusionment with that traditional police reform model that we had been attempting in recent years, even among some of the folks who were responsible for designing and implementing and evaluating some of those programs, there's been a real sort of moment of reckoning of, you know, Minneapolis was in many ways doing a lot of things with police reform, right? And yet, right, George Floyd was still murdered in this horrific way. And so that's caused people to try and rethink kind of what are more transformational changes in policing. So the Minneapolis City Council has said that they are interested in pursuing a real transformational shift, a dismantling of MPD. But the way that that's currently being implemented is in a one-year study period of community consultation and developing up alternatives. So what emerges out of that could look really different. It, It could be 
we still have the Minneapolis Police Department, but the union contract is radically renegotiated so that it is easier to discipline and fire officers who commit misconduct, for example. We could have the department be disbanded, but have another police department reformed that looks similar, but has, again, sort of a different arrangement of practices and policies. We could, you know, some of the city council members are asking us to create a department of public safety that would be a broader agency that would rethink public safety strategies. And the MPD would just be one piece of that broader safety strategy. And we would invest in things like violence interruption preventers and other kinds of sort of community efforts to address the kinds of social problems that police get called in to respond to. So it's really, I think, a a profound range of kind of ideas on the table to create real transformational change. You were involved in a research project from 2017 to 2019 that looked at police reform through the eyes of local police, professionals, activists, and residents in North Minneapolis. Tell us more about this project and what you learned after conducting over 120 interviews. That's right. So together with a team of undergraduate and graduate students, we conducted interviews among residents who lived or worked in North Minneapolis in 2017, 2018, and 2019. And then I conducted a series of interviews with people who were involved in police reform or police advocism. So people in grassroots organizations, people within MPD, kind of the whole gamut. What we found really, I think, provides some useful context for what's happening today. On the advocacy side, we saw a split emerging between the groups that were arguing for kind of the kinds of professionalization reforms with more funding for the police that we saw the city largely adopt. And then we saw the what were at the time more fringe groups that were interested in defunding or abolishing the police who wanted to see the police budget actually reduced so that we could invest in these alternative forms of community safety. And, you know, you had asked me before about sort of what are the points of overlap? I mean, I think the point of overlap is that both sets of groups are fundamentally concerned with how do we reduce these kinds of negative encounters between police and citizens. And that doesn't just include right police murders or police killings. It also includes sort of low-level daily harassment and bias stops and abusive verbal behavior from police officers. The group interested in professionalizing reform thinks that we get there through training and bureaucratic reforms. And the group that fights for defunding or abolition says that policing is inherently a failed institution and therefore we should invest less money in it and we should invest money in communities more directly. So we saw the split starting to emerge between those groups and we saw the way that the city council was prioritizing different avenues of reform building up to the the current moment. And then we have the interviews with Northside residents. And I think what those interviews really set up to help us understand this contemporary moment is just how deeply frustrated many, particularly Black residents, were with the Minneapolis Police Department. There had been and continues to be a, a, a real line of 
uh, historical continuity of police aggressive targeting and harassment, particularly of black residents. So if you look at MPD's dashboard data on use of force, black residents in Minneapolis are seven times more likely to experience an encounter with police officers that involves a use of force incident. And there had been sort of a series of police killings and police scandals, both historically and more recently, that meant that many black residents in North Minneapolis were just exhausted and were at the place where I think more residents are today, where they are seeing the abuses of the police and asking, what can we possibly do about this? And we need to do something more than the kinds of reforms that we've tried in the past, because clearly they're not enough to overcome the problems. We're talking with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology Michelle Phelps about systemic racism in our nation's police departments and what a new vision for law enforcement might look like. Two-thirds of the respondents in your study had positive experiences with the police and could point to a time where they thought the police actually helped in a given situation. Still, those positive experiences did not make up for the negative ones. Do you think the community and the police can still learn from these positive interactions and uh, sort of analyze when things go right? And uh, can those kind of actions be repeated more often in future situations? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I think about it is that every encounter that citizens have with the police is an opportunity to either build or diminish trust. And so I think that those positive experiences did matter for residents, but I think it is much harder to build trust than it is to destroy trust. And so I think the sort of scale of positive actions that it takes to balance the scale, so to say, in the wake of something like the George Floyd murder, which so many of us watched in camera, I mean, that takes an extraordinary amount of effort. And in many cases, when people were talking about positive experiences with officers, it wasn't that they were particularly happy with those experiences or those those experiences were particularly positive. In many cases, it was a sign of just how low their expectations for the police were. You know, people would say things like, oh, well, I wasn't harassed or I wasn't arrested. So, you know, that was a positive experience. And in some cases where the positive experiences came out of sort of community engagement events, right? So like the ice cream with police or coffee with police or community forums where police show up, that was sometimes perceived by residents as sort of a a fake sign of solidarity, right? That police would show up, that they would sort of send in the friendly officers, that they would put on this good face of interacting with the community. But then the next day, there were other officers on the street doing the same thing they'd always done, right? And so it, in some cases, came across as, I think, a, a false gesture of goodwill because it made residents feel like the police were saying that they were lying about all those other instances, right? Because the the police weren't acknowledging the real problem, which wasn't the absence of ice cream parties. It was the officer on the street, right, who's harassing and abusing residents. That's the problem. And that's what they wanted to see fixed, Um, not these sort of one-off positive interactions with other officers. The Minneapolis Police Department has had many problems during the past decade. What reforms and practices were put into place, and why have these measures failed, or why were they not enough to prevent George Floyd's killing and prevent both peaceful and destructive protests in this city? 
Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the the reforms that they put into place, we, we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, but the kinds of reforms they did were they put all officers through a series of training protocols. So there was training in the sort of historical legacies and the role of the police in, in racial oppression in the United States. There was implicit bias training or sort of the, the ways in which people make biased decisions in the in the moment. There was de-escalation training. There was training on mental health crises and how to respond to mental health crises. There were community listening sessions. They tightened up the body camera policies. There was attempts to set up an early intervention system and to strengthen the disciplining process for officers. But I think, you know, all of these pieces of reform, it's not that they did nothing. I think they were important. I think they pushed us in the right direction. You can see that in the declining use of force rates in the last couple of years, for example. But you're trying to combat a culture of sort of empowered entitlement towards using use of force in, in a department and, and a sort of us versus them mentality, right, where the community members or specific community members are the enemy. And I think changing that kind of cultural process and changing the disciplining process, which is deeply protected by the union contract and by state laws and by certain Supreme Court decisions, if we think about accountability through criminal trials, right, all of that is deeply constrained. And so moving the culture and practices and policies of an 800 person plus bureaucracy is slow and complicated work. And I think they made a lot more progress on the training front, which evaluation studies show make a difference, but but works slowly and only works sort of if there's cultural buy-in to those reforms. And they didn't make as much progress with the discipline and early warning systems and ability to fire officers who have been found to commit misconduct. And so the pieces of the reform process with the least teeth were the ones that were most successful. But I also think it is difficult in an organization like policing, where police have tremendous discretion and the power to use lethal force, and we have a citizenry that has a lot of guns, I think people really do question, right, can we get the number of police killings down to zero? And what would that look like in the United States, given the the histories of racial oppression, given the um, extensive poverty in the United States, the sort of multiple policy failures in communities around housing and education, right? Like, could we get to a place through reforming the police alone that actually brought us down to a place where there were zero police killings? And I think that's partly where the movement for abolition comes from, is to say that these reform mechanisms are never going to get us there. And so we have to think differently about how do we reduce police citizen context instead of trying to reform our way out of this problem. The second part of your question was about sort of this specific murder, though, and the protests. And I think, you know, the protests that erupted in Minneapolis and nationwide are partly about the specifics of this case, right? So that the fact that it wasn't a gun shooting, the fact that there was no plausible threat to the officer's life, the fact that the violence was so slow and, and so willfully unconcerned with the, the dignity and personhood of the victim, and the fact that the community members were watching and live streaming it. I mean, there are a lot of unique characteristics and, and sort of the facial expression of the officer of looking just so 
unconcerned and unbothered, uh, like he's done this a million times. I think there were a lot of specifics of this case that made it particularly explosive. And I think in the context of a really controversial presidential term, the first term under President Trump, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic and the sort of mass economic dislocations caused by that, and the real pain in the Black community around the disparities in COVID deaths and the failure of the political leadership in our country to address the pandemic and address those disparities. I mean, I think all of that and the chain of racist violence that had happened in the country preceding that, right? There were multiple cases before George Floyd's murder that had really sort of sparked this new awareness and sort of attention to racial violence. I think all of that made this a particularly combustible moment for Minneapolis and many places across the country. We're talking with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology Michelle Phelps about systemic racism in our nation's police departments and what a new vision for law enforcement might look like. A veto-proof majority of the Minneapolis City Council said they would dismantle the Minneapolis police. There are some questions about whether the council can do so without changing the city charter, which dictates a minimum number of police officers. But what can you tell us about this proposal? What would dismantling the MPD look like, and what would replace it? So I can't tell you what the proposal will actually look like because the city council has left it open. And and I think that was the right move. I I don't think the city council should be um, determining the future of public safety in Minneapolis without an extensive period of community input and organization around what that next step looks like. So what I can tell you are different models of other places that have taken similarly big transformative steps in policing. So I think the model that a lot of people have in mind is the Camden, New Jersey model. So Camden, New Jersey was facing uh, a stark economic crisis and had a series of scandals involving their police department. And so in their case, they did dismantle the police department, the entity that was the Camden Police Department, what was ended. Uh, and the county took over policing for Camden. And what you saw was they rebuilt a new department under county leadership. And they wound up hiring back about half of the force, um, but they hired back that force Um, without a union contract initially. Those officers are now unionized, but weren't at the time that it was rebanded. And they rebanded it under new leadership that really prioritized community engagement and community policing. And you saw a real shift in, in Camden in the wake of that. However, you know, I do think it's important to point out that critics have said that what the Camden, New Jersey model did was simply replace an older police force with a younger police force. And they actually, in the end, wound up with more officers. And as a result of the emphasis on community policing, wound up arresting more people than they were before for low level offenses. So it's certainly not the kind of reimagining of public safety outside of the process of criminalization that I think many advocates have in mind. It was really more of a a union busting mechanism. I think other people have in mind 
things like the CAHOOTS model in Eugene, Oregon, where trained social workers respond to certain 911 crises, um, sometimes with a police officer partner, but sometimes independently. And the idea there is, can we really divert some 911 calls to non-police entities, and particularly around mental health crises and interpersonal conflicts where there isn't an obvious threat of violence? I think a lot of people want to know, can we dispatch other city agencies to those kind of situations to resolve those concerns without sending somebody with a gun and who's trained in use of force and what to arrest folks for? You know, one model that has been proposed by some of the city council members and that would go on the ballot amendment is that in the charter, instead of having those number of staff positions targeted to the MPD, it would be a staff positions for a Department of Public Safety. And that MPD could be a part of that Department of Public Safety, but wouldn't include all of it. So you could have, for instance, first responders that were social workers who were part of that public safety department. You could have what's known as violence interruption workers or people who try to intervene in interpersonal conflicts, particularly things that might erupt into gun violence. But before it turns into lethal violence or to stop a cycle of retaliation to try and intervene. You could have all of those programs better funded to the extent that they exist today or new to the extent that they don't exist today. And you could have the public safety money being spent not just on police, but also on these alternative mechanisms. Minneapolis Police Chief Madera Arredondo had previously asked for more police officers to meet the needs of a growing city population. Between 2018 and 2019, the MPD says almost 6,800 Priority One emergency calls went unanswered. While the mayor and the city council approved more training officers last year, the budget and request for more officers was nowhere near what Chief Arredondo had asked for. Is there a case to be made that we have already started the process of defunding the police if we as a city are not increasing the number of officers as the city grows and we're allowing priority one calls to go unanswered. Yeah, and I think this is where the the conversation around police reform has to be so much larger than thinking just about police in isolation, right? It needs to be about city responses and it needs to be about all of us and and sort of who we vote for, what our priorities are, and when we call 911 and what we use that emergency response line for. And so I think right now we have set up our society such that there are a number of sort of behaviors that people want to control that we use the criminal justice system to control. So homelessness, we criminalize. Drug abuse, we criminalize. Domestic violence, we criminalize. And so without a real rethinking of the criminalization of all of those things and without a rethinking of sort of what agencies respond to those social problems, it is certainly fair to say that we have put police in a bind in the sense that people don't want to spend more money on the police department. And yet there are a number of 911 calls that are very urgent that are going to nobody but the police department right now. And so I think part of the answer is that the police department will rethink how they allocate their officers, right? So you can have more officers responding to those calls and fewer officers doing other kinds of proactive enforcement in particular. 
Although many people would say that investing in sort of the officers in charge of criminal investigations to make sure that these cases get closed is also very important. So we wouldn't want to defer from that work. Um, but I think part of it is we need to build up alternate systems so that either these problems don't rise to the level of an urgent call in the first place, or so that there are other resources that people can draw on to resolve those concerns without calling in the police. We are talking with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology Michelle Phelps about systemic racism in our nation's police departments and what a new vision for law enforcement might look like. Communities of color in areas of concentrated poverty have a seemingly contradictory problem. They are both over-policed and underserved by police, meaning that there are higher rates of arrests and higher rates of complaints of excessive force. At the same time, there are higher rates of crime and a sense that the police failed to protect the neighborhood. Can you expand on this contradiction? And because of the higher crime rates in poorer communities, are there differences of opinions as to whether the solution is more or less policing? Yeah, so we often refer to this as the, the paradox of over-policing and under-protection. So in many communities of color, there is a sense that police are sort of this oppressive force in the community that is constantly stopping and harassing members of the community, and particularly um, young men of color. And yet, high rates of very serious violent crime persist in the community. And so in some communities, this turns into a conversation about sort of you know, why is the police department, if they're so present, why can't they solve these problems? And, and I think that part of that conversation is about, again, we need to think beyond the police, right? So why do we have the high levels of residential segregation that we have today? Why do we allow some communities to be written out of the sort of benefits that many residents in Minneapolis enjoy? Why do we allow some schools to fail and other schools not to fail? Why do we allow there to be economic opportunities in some communities? Why do we allow there to be an inadequate supply of um, affordable housing, for example, right? So there are a lot of problems that police get the blame for, but that have these broader structural causes that we should also be holding political leaders to account for addressing those broader problems that produce the crime rates, right? And produce the sense of insecurity in, in those communities. I think the other piece of this is that Police for many decades have had this belief in the power of proactive policing. So the idea is by having officers on the street and by aggressively responding to low-level criminal violations, um, that you can prevent more serious crimes. It was called the broken windows theory. Um, so police saw that low-level policing as really important for addressing more serious crimes, but community members who still experience high rates of serious crimes and who see the police as present and constantly harassing people for nothing, see this as sort of, well, they must not really want to protect us, right? And it alienates the community from the police. And I think more recent research in criminology has suggested that police could do a lot less of the low-level proactive enforcement with very little cost to serious crime. And then, in fact, the more productive strategy would be in solving violent crime, that if you address violent crime by actually solving those cases, particularly in the case of murder, you then stop a cycle of retaliatory violence, right, or a sense that no one's going to do anything about crime in this community. And so that it's not 
the proactive sort of low-level enforcement, which alienates the community that you should be doing. It's the solving those violent crimes in the first place that would address the distrust uh, among the community. Protests broke out around the world after George Floyd's death. Are we in a larger moment where the entire world is reconsidering policing? I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, if you had told me when I had started this research project back in 2016 that, you know, there were going to be op-eds about cutting police by 50% and abolition on the front pages of the New York Times, you know, I wouldn't have believed you. I I have read about abolition for years and I taught about it in my class for years, but it was always something where I was sort of the first one bringing that to many of my students' attention. And now it's very much a national conversation. So I do think this is a new moment. I, I think it's a tremendously hopeful and exciting moment. I think it connects to a lot of the sort of advocacy around addressing mass incarceration and the other sort of pieces of our incredibly large criminal legal system that produces a lot of injustice. So I see them all as connected and sort of feeding momentum into one another. But we are also in a moment where these issues are deeply divided along partisan lines. So the Minnesota state legislature, of course, closed their special session without doing anything on police reform. So, you know, I think that there is increasing momentum to make really big changes and shifts here. But I think it will still be a long struggle. I think this is the beginning of a new series of struggle where people advocating for alternatives to criminalization and mass punishment have at least a seat at the table, but that are still going to have to work hard to overcome a lot of political resistance and, and do a lot of educating, frankly, of the public around what these alternatives look like and why they might be a better answer um, than the process of criminalization and policing and prisons and jails that we've grown accustomed to. Michelle Phelps is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Minnesota. Professor Phelps, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Last month marked the 50th anniversary of the Kent State and Jackson State shootings. Much like today, the nation was experiencing widespread civil unrest at that time. On the next Dialogue Minnesota, a conversation with Kenneth Hammond, a professor of history at New Mexico State University, who was a member of the Students for a Democratic Society at Kent State at the time of the shootings. We'll look back at that dark moment in history and examine parallels to today's protests. That's all for this week. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time.